Let's turn now to God's word and we read from First Kings, Second Kings, the first chapter. Second Kings chapter one. The Lord's Day that we are looking at this afternoon, it deals with the confession about Jesus being the Savior. And the confession stresses that we have to seek and find salvation only in him. And this chapter records a history that also underlines the need to seek and find salvation in the Lord alone. Second Kings 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. And now Isaiah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, And he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akram? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you? And told you these things. They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah, the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the king, the captain of fifty, If I'm a man of God, Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties, but now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him, do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king, 
and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Akron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. And the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Let's now turn to the Heidelberg Catechism and turn to Lord's Day 11. You find on page 526, page 526. 26, we deal there with the second part of the Apostles' Creed, that's why the heading is there, God the Son and our Redemption. First question, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Because he saves us from all our sins. And because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Next question. Do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior Jesus? No. Though they boast of him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior Jesus. For one of two things must be true, either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept his Savior must find in him all that is necessary for their salvation. Thus far our confession. Love the congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. If you need to contact someone, you need to know how to contact the person. And the more important the contact is, the more important it is to know how to get there, where to find the person, what kind of address. If you have to email a person, you need to know the email address. If you want to visit a person, you have to know the postal address or the, the road number. Otherwise, you'll, you'll be seeking and, and asking for help, perhaps, but you may not be able to find it. And what is already true in, in regular things become even more important when you, kneel, need, when you deal with need and when you need help. That's why we have a very simple code to get help quickly. You dial 911. It's easy to memorize, teach it to our children, so that they can also quickly do it. And perhaps you have even at home, you have other numbers close by, your doctor or other people. Because it's important to, to be quickly there and to have the right address when you are in need. Well, Lord's Day 11, brothers and sisters, is about knowing the right address. You may have noticed that it speaks about seeking and finding in the first answer. Because salvation is not to be sought or found 
in anyone else. And the second question and answer also highlights the fact that not all who seek indeed also find. You have to seek in the right way. The history that we read from 2 Kings 1 also deals with going to the right address or what happens when you go to the wrong address. And with that, the Bible is showing us that salvation is something very unique. It's not something that we do. It's not something that we can accomplish. It's not something that we devise. It is something that is given to us. It is given to us in the only Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the Scriptures and not the fiction of our own imagination, who is the head of a church, and that's the address where we find him and so receive the help that we need, salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, as we confess this, let us humble ourselves before the, ma- the majesty and the wisdom of our God and seek and find salvation in the only Savior. And that is the theme for the sermon also this afternoon. Salvation is only to be sought and found in our Savior, Jesus. I hope to first uh, deal with that story that we read from Second Kings 1. And then secondly, we will look at the catechism and how the catechism explains salvation. And then thirdly, we will see how that also impacts our lives. So let's begin with this history that we read from Second Kings 1. It is the last recorded interaction between a well-known prophet, Elijah, and the house of a well-known king, Ahab. Because the king that we're dealing with is a descendant of Ahab. And you know the history between Ahab and Elijah. Who doesn't know Elijah? The man of fire who stood before King Ahab and said there will be no more rain. And for three years there was no rain till he asked for it, the prophet. He's the man who, who taunted the, the prophets of Baal and the priests of Baal on, on Mount Carmel and said, oh, you have to shout louder because your God doesn't hear you. He's on holidays. He's gone. And they shouted louder, but no rain came till Elijah made the altar and only prayed one prayer and the whole altar was consumed by fire. Elijah, that man who, by the grace of God, by the power of God, lived a life of warning against Baal worship. Well, that's what Ahab is known for, Baal worship. King Ahab married a princess from Sidon, Jezebel, and so brought into the northern kingdom the worship of Baal. In a way, he replaced the golden calf worship with the Baal worship. And that brought Ahab and Elijah at a collision course. Well, Ahab is gone already, killed in battle by the Lord's hand. Jezebel is gone too, thrown out of the window and driven over by the chariots and eaten by the dogs. Elijah is still there. And in his old age, Elijah is called again into action. Again against the house of Ahab, his son, Ahaziah. It seems that the son has not learned from his father's mistakes. He followed the path of his father and mother in serving Baal. You see, the king had a problem. He injured himself. 
It says that he fell through the lattice, and we don't know the extent of it, how serious it was. But he, he hurt himself, and he was laying in his bed. But that wasn't the only problem he has, because the chapter begins with saying that Moab rebelled. You see, his father, King Ahab, had been a very skillful administrator, a very skillful king, and had been able to consolidate the power of the northern kingdom so that the surrounding nations were paying tribute to Israel. And Moab was an important source of income for Israel. And now that Moab saw that a son has come instead of the father, of course, what did they do? They think, maybe we can go on our own, and they rebel against Ahaziah. Loss of revenue, loss of income, meaning taxes in Israel would go up. So here you have it. A young man, new to the throne, political instability, health issues, health concerns. You need help. Ahaziah knows that. He also knows that the help that he needs is of a spiritual kind. He does more than ask his military advisors or his economic advisors, what do I do? He says, no, we have to get the advice of the spiritual powers. So he sends his messengers to go to Baal, Zabab, and ask, what will happen? Give me insight. Give me help. And that is the moment It says in 2 Kings 1 that the angel of the Lord steps in. And brothers and sisters, as a side note, the angel of the Lord that is most often in the Old Testament, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, who later on takes up the human nature and is given the name Jesus by his parents when he was born in Bethlehem. In his pre-incarnate state, he was involved already in taking care of God's people, also in warning. And here's the angel of the Lord going to Elijah, because there's a king in Israel who needs help, who needs salvation. And what does he do? He doesn't go to the Lord, but he goes to Baal. And so Elijah is called into action, into service. And he sends the messages back with a very sobering and short message. You will not get back on your feet. You will not recover. You will die. It doesn't take Isaiah very long to figure out who this man is. The messengers just have to describe his, the way he looks. So I know him. The old problem again, Elijah. Let's deal with him swiftly. My dad had problems with him his whole life. I'm going to deal with him swiftly. He sends out a captain with 50 soldiers to catch him. But soon, all 50 are nothing but burned bodies. God's fire came down. Another 50 soldiers, same thing. Not a minor detail, is it? 100 men killed king throws him in there in order to get his prophet. And with each action rebelling against God, because the message had been clear, is there no God in Israel? Well, if you were the man of God, come down. Elijah says, I am the man of God, and you will feel it. And finally, with the third captain, then Elijah goes, because the Lord says, it's okay. And he delivers the message to the king, It is your deathbed. 
But throughout this chapter, it is very clear, and three times it is recorded, the reason why. Whereas we may be more interested in who was his captain and what happened to these captains and so on, the focus of the chapter is on why you did as if there is no God in Israel. You did as if there is no word of God, as if there is no prophet of God, as God is absent from Israel, as he had never spoken. And you went to the Baal. You needed help. You needed security, certainty, assurance. But you went to the wrong address. Don't you know there's a proper address? And that is the prophet of God. That is the word of God. It is the God who has revealed himself in his word to his people. Verse 17 puts it very, very shortly. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Israel has to know that there is a God in Israel and that his word indeed counts. That was the end of the king's life. And God saying to his people, apart from me, There is no salvation. If you try to find it in another way, look what happens. No hope. The angel of the Lord, the Son of God, wants to make clear to the people of God, there is only hope, there is only life, there is only healing, there is only salvation when you go to the God of Israel who speaks to his people through and in and with his word. That's Second Kings 1. From there we move on to the catechism. And we will connect what we just saw then also to the questions and answers that we have in the catechism. In Lord's Day 11, we are dealing with explaining the Apostles' Creed. They had this total sum of God's promises that we need to believe in order to be saved. That's Lord's Day 7, Lord's Day 8. And we have divided the Apostles' Creed into the Father and our creation, the Son and our redemption, the Spirit and our sanctification. Here we are with the Son who redeems us, who sets us free. And we begin with the names that he has received and the titles. And the first name is Jesus. That is a very common name. A whole lot more boys in Israel must have had that name, perhaps even in the town of Nazareth, same name. The name is also known from the Old Testament as Joshua, also a common name. And, and even with that, in, in taking a name that is very normal, it is evident that the Son of God became one of us. He didn't have a name that really stands out as totally different. No, he had a name like many others had. That was the name that his mom would use if she had to call him in for supper or to bring a message to somebody. Uh, Later on, he he became a carpenter. So if he had to order a table or a piece of furniture, he would ask Jesus to make your table to do what you uh, asked him to do. That was his name in which he was addressed, his personal name. So in a way, very common, and yet very special. And that's the element that the catechism highlights. Because the name has a meaning. 
And the meaning of the name Jesus is the Lord saves. So it is special because of that meaning in it. And, and for him, unlike all the other boys who had the name Jesus, he is his name. He and his name are one and the same. He is our Savior. So that name tells us exactly why he came to this world, what he came to do here. Namely, the Lord, through him, is saving. What does that mean? What does it mean? Think of the word save or salvation. In a very familiar term. We meet it so often in the Bible. We use it often too. But what really does it mean? Saving or salvation. It means that something is restored. Something that is broken is healed. It is used, for example, in, in the Old Testament in connection with illness. When you are sick, you want healing. And then that is called salvation. That is, to your body is again functioning the way it should. When there is war between Israel and the other nations, then when Israel prays for salvation, it prays for peace. So that again, life is restored in its proper way. So the first meaning of salvation is that something that is broken is restored again. And, and I stress this because too easily and too often I find we, we, we use the word salvation and we think of a future thing entity, a future hope that maybe one day we go to be with the Lord in heaven or that he will establish his, his uh, new earth. And yes, that is indeed the, the, the logical and the, the wonderful consequence, but salvation points in the first place to something that is happening in our lives here and now, restoration and healing of life. And of course, and here, in the case of this man, it is not the, the healing of sickness. It is not the restoration of two nations that are at war with each other. It is the reconciliation between God and men. Because by our sins, we have broken that relationship. And what does he do? He brings us back together. He heals what we broke by our sin. You see, we cannot do that. We can only break. And we continue to break. We can only destroy the relationship with God, with each other. And, and if you read Genesis, then you see how that brings about shame and, and, and guilt. All the consequences of sin. And he, he heals. He restores. And he does that in that in this life, people again can live in fellowship with God and with each other. Although they're still sinners, and although they still have to confess that even their best works are imperfect, yet it is possible to have a good relationship with God and with your brothers and sisters because Christ has come, Jesus has come, and he has reconciled us. That's his work. That's why we can be church. We could not be a congregation here at Elora if it were not because of the Savior. 
in that we can worship knowing that the Lord himself is here with us and that we can sit together and sing together and confess together and help one another. That's all the result of the work of our Savior. And later on in the Catechism, Lord's Days 14 and 15 and 16, it will be explained how exactly he did this. He became man, he suffered, he died, he rose. That's not the point here now. The point here is the sum total of his work, the name that he received, he saves. And that's why in question and answer 29, you have that also expressed. Why is the Son of God called Jesus that is Savior? And then the answer is very simple and very beautiful. He saves us from all our sins. Notice, he goes to the root of the problem. Because my problem is not that I have some uh, character uh, defects or that I'm inclined to do certain things a certain way. My problem is my sin. Lord's Day 2, 3, 4. What is your, uh, your misery, your sin, your disobedience? And he came to deal with that because I cannot deal with it. And that's why he had to do it. And we live in a, in a culture where, and, and by nature, we all like to think that we can do it ourselves, even if it is a little bit. But he says, no, he does it because he saves us from all our sins. This, this Savior is inclusive, and we'll see also most, in a moment, exclusive. That means all our sins. I don't have to worry that maybe I have to pay for a sin. He takes it all. And he does it in this life because it uses the present tense. He saves us right now. It's as real as you will see the water coming on the head of this little girl. That's for her, but also for all of you to know at this very moment, through the work of Jesus Christ, we are before God as if we had never had any sin. He saves us from all our sins. Most beautiful confession, isn't it? That's his name. And therefore, it says... Salvation should not be sought or found in anyone else. There's no other name given among men by which we have to be saved. Seeking and finding. Yes, because people know that life is broken. You talk to anyone and they all realize, yes, there's a brokenness to life. Things don't happen the way, or things happen in a way that we don't always want to happen. There's, there's, there's pain, there's grief, there's hardship, there's disappointments. And, and everyone is looking for healing and for restoration. But so many people want to do it in their own way. And here God says, no, it's all in Him. And it's only in Him. And go to Him, and you'll find it. You receive it. How can you do that? How can you go to him? How can you find Jesus? If someone asks you, I would like to meet him. Where do I meet him? And you say, well, come to church. Remember what, what we read in Second Kings 1 where, where Elijah says, do you, don't you know there's a God in Israel who by his word is present? So how is the Lord Jesus present? How can you meet him? When he comes to you in his word, as head of a church, as head of his body. And that's where you find him. 
and receive salvation. That is why in the Apostles' Creed, later on we'll see that, that when we speak about the third part about God the Holy Spirit, then we say we believe one holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. For that is the evidence of the forgiveness and salvation. It's also the place where you receive it. Outside the church, no salvation. Article 28, Belgian Confession. And question as a 30, underline that, that message of uniqueness. And it deals, of course, with a very... Um, with the matter that was at stake there at the time the catechism was written. Uh, initially, it deals with the Roman Catholic teaching that, that, yes, there is Jesus Christ, but there's all the things that I have to do. I have to do good works, or I have to pray to saints, or I have to do other things and, and admire relics, and that will also help me. And that's why the question is, well, what about those who, who seek their salvation and well-being in saints, in themselves, or anywhere else. Do they also believe in the Savior Jesus? And the answer is very short. It says no. Underlining the uniqueness of this Savior. It's only one way. It's all in him, but then also without him, there's nothing. And whatever presents itself unlike him, though it may seem like him, it's counterfeit. And that's what it comes out here. It says, well, they may boast of him in words. That means if you would ask him, do you believe in Jesus Christ? He would say, sure, I do. I believe in Jesus Christ. But it's not this Christ of the scriptures. Not a Christ that it's all in him and only in him. It's a Christ of, of he does it and I have to do it too. Or it's a Christ that gives me the wonderful example and I, I have to follow that example. And the catechism says, no. They may say they do. But they don't really believe. Because it's either all or nothing at all. So the catechism highlights here the, uh, this, the need to be discerning because of the possibility of counterfeit. And counterfeit means it presents itself as the real thing, but it is not. That's the catechism. What do we do with it? So now I want to connect some of these things to our lives and the three things that I would like to highlight. First thing, and it has come through already also in my explanation of the catechism, the first thing is we have to realize how rich we are in Jesus the Christ. We are so rich, brothers and sisters, in the fact that God has given us the Savior Many people who don't know him. Many people in this world who look for salvation, who try this, who try that, or maybe just ignore it. But it's all doomed to fail. Whereas God gives to us the truth of the gospel, the news that he has given someone in our place to reconcile us to God, to take the wrath that we deserve. How rich and we receive it without deserving it. It's only by grace. It's something we may never take for granted. Also when we come to church. Because not only are we rich in our Savior, we're also rich in the church. Because that is the body of 
our Savior. That is a means by which he, through the preaching of the gospel and the use of the sacraments, works this salvation in us. And that's why we come. Because we need it. We want to hear it. We want to drink it in. And the presence of the church and the presence of the preaching of the gospel, the presence of the sacraments, tell us there is a God who comes to this world. And the message of salvation by faith in him has to be proclaimed continuously, universally, without discrimination. It has to go out because that is the treasure, treasure of the church, the gospel of salvation. So brothers and sisters, think about that. Also when you will see a child being baptized and you're being reminded of what it means to you, that you have been washed of your sins and that you now are accounted righteous before God and that the Holy Spirit has promised to dwell in you and make you a living member of Jesus Christ. That is the reality, the present reality of God's work of salvation. That's the first, to be thankful for what we have and how rich we are. Secondly, we have to be well aware of the counterfeit, the make-believe, and that we live not only in a world that outrightly denies the Lord Jesus and says we want nothing to do with him, but at the same time also in a culture and a situation where the name of Jesus and Christ are being used and people claim to speak in his name, but they don't really. Now, how do you know whether they do? Or not? Well, Scripture is the mark. Truth to the Scriptures. Is the Jesus they speak about the Jesus of the Scriptures? And who is the Jesus of the Scriptures? Well, we have confessed that together. We have summed it up in our Apostles' Creed, in our Belgian Confession, in our Catechism. There we show it. That is what the Bible teaches about this Savior. So when someone says, I believe in Jesus Christ, do not right away say, oh, wonderful, I do too. But ask, who is he? Who is he? Because there are many who say they do believe in him, and they may be very sincere about it, but they don't. Sincerity is not a proof of truth. The proof of truth is the word of God. Examples of counterfeit Jesuses? Well, think of the liberals who say that Jesus that they want to believe in is the one who is socially engaged, who takes the side of all the suffering people and the underdogs and who wants the society to be turned upside down and revolution. Is that the Jesus of the scriptures? He doesn't preach a revolution. He preaches that we can only be reconciled to God through his death on the cross. There's the Jesus that doesn't need a church. It's a bodiless Jesus. I, I can quit going to church, but I still belong to Jesus, they say. And... I can still have a fellowship with him. He, the Lord, has indicated 
that fellowship with him is through the means that he has entrusted to the church. We have to seek and find him in that way. And thus to say, well, I can still have a wonderful relationship, but I don't need a church. That's counterfeit. Or a third, someone calls this the best friends forever Jesus. Typical in North American culture. That means Jesus is the one who is always with us. He's always there for me whenever I need him. But he's really there to prop me up. To make me reach my potentials. But then it's all about me and he just is there to make me reach my potentials. He approves of all situations. He's not judgmental. He just caters to my self-confidence. That's not the Jesus of the scriptures. Oh yes, he's very close to us. But he's also the one who's filled with wrath when he sees his name being abused and twisted. He is the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. All these counterfeits, don't fall for them. But be grounded in the scriptures. Know by digging into the scriptures and knowing your confessions who it is that you belong to and have discernment in that way. Thirdly, we cannot leave Lord's Day 11 without also having a good look at ourselves and asking ourselves the question, who is he in my life? Salvation, I said, is a present reality. That means he is everything in my life. He saves me from all my sins every day again. I may go to him because at the end of every day, I have to confess my sin. It is not so that through life you become better and better and better till you almost reach perfection at the end of your life. No, every day we sin, we do wrong, we say things, we do things. But then I may lay it before him and he covers in the sight of God all my sins every day again. We live in a world that wants people to feel good. Well, if you want to feel good, it is not by looking at yourself, but by looking to him. What he has done, and by trusting in him. To truly trust in Christ, you have to trust in him alone. Because either this Jesus is the perfect Savior, and that's a deep comfort to us, or you have no savior at all. Belief in him. Amen.